Welcome everyone to the Behind the Budget Podcast. I'm Kushik Paul and I'm joined by my co-host Carl Cottingham. Carl, how's your day going? So far so good. It's actually snowing up here in New York at the moment and it's the Super Bowl as well. So uh, things are going to be very interesting in my neighborhood. Yeah, snowing here in Baltimore too. And yeah, it is the Super Bowl and I went grocery shopping like a moron. Oh my goodness. I was able to, I did that on Wednesday because I knew today was just going to be a complete crapshoot. So. That's what I get for not thinking far ahead. Far ahead. Yeah. So, Carl, what's happening in the world of movies? Well, as well, it is that time of the year again, and it is the Academy Awards. And they have just announced the nominations for 2022. And I thought it'd be a little fun just to work with our formula a little bit and just kind of talk about the Oscars and what I think are the top four awards and who I think are probably in the running to get the award for this year. So I wanted to first go to the best pictures category. And this is, and I've sent you a link, and it is from the official Oscars.org. And we have 10 nominations this year. We have Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. And out of all the... And I thought uh, when it came to the best picture, in my mine it's kind of hard to say and because of the amount of nominations the movie got this year it's more than likely going to end up being power of the dog but i've had this rule of thumb where the academy does not like netflix and they'll give them a consolation prize mainly in the documentary sphere but it's very rare that Netflix has gotten uh, one of the bigger awards. It's How often... many of these movies are Netflix movies? Um, Power of the Dog, not... Don't, Don't Look Up. It's just those two. Okay, not Belfast. All right. No, Belfast was released by... I want to say it's another streaming service. Um, I... Don't believe it is. It's actually was distributed by Focus Features here in America. Oh, okay. Coda was Apple TV Plus. Dune, King Richard, Warner Brothers, but right. you know HBO Max. Yeah. So, uh, so. I'm guessing um, that's just COVID year of like it, everything I, pushing to streaming. Right. It is one of those years where. Streaming really kind of picked up last year, and especially with Warner Brothers' policy of day and date release, which we will touch on that in just a minute because that's actually the crux of a bigger story. But for now, when it comes to Best Picture, I want to say just on nomination alone, it might end up being Power of the Dog because it's the one that has 12 nominations this year, but just because a movie has the best most nominations doesn't mean it's going to win all the nominations. Yeah, it tends to work opposite. Um, in La La Land lead with nominations its year, 
and still lose? I believe so, but don't quote me on that. Yeah. But um, if I had to be, but like, but like I was saying, Power of the Dog could change because of Jane Campion's direction, uh, because she's one of the she's been in the business for a very long time. She has a great batting average when it comes to critical reception for her films. But if I had to pick, but if there was a dark horse candidate, it's probably a split between. Belfast or King Richard, which are more traditional theatrically released films. So Belfast more than King Richard because of the hybrid release. Yeah, C- Belfast also has a giant ensemble cast. Very much so. Yeah. And, of course, King Richard has the power of Will Smith as well. And that actually does lead me into the best actor category. And for this one, we have Javier Bardem for being the Ricardos, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog, Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom. Thank God. Will Smith for King Richard, and Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Macbeth. Yes! Um, But as much as I'm enthusiastic about uh, Denzel Washington in Tragedy of Macbeth, which, if you haven't seen that movie, please go see it. It is really good. Um, it's the same story. But it's told so well, Kit Paul. It's like a... It's like if... The one, it's like Joel Cohen decided to make an old 1940s noir version of Macbeth and cribbed Orson Welles while he was at it. Alright, if it's noir, I'll take it. I, I, I just got burned by the Macbeth f- where Michael Fassbender was the lead. Oh, trust me. You're going to like this one a lot better. Okay. Uh, but um, my hyping of Macbeth aside, I do think this is Will Smith's to lose, personally. Uh, like, he's he, in the front runner, right? He is the front runner, and also he's had a long history in the industry. He is a respected figure. And I like to coin him the Leonardo DiCaprio actor, now that Leonardo DiCaprio himself got an Oscar for The Revenant. Um, one of those actors who's been in the business for a long time, has a very well-respected body of work, has often gotten acclaim for his performances, and I think this is probably the year he'll finally get that, that statue. I want to talk about the leading actress in the leading role category. Oh, yes. This is going to be interesting because we have Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, and Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos. And, of course, we have Kirsten Stewart for Spencer. And I'm kind of of the opinion that I would honestly be shocked if it wasn't Kirsten Stewart, mainly because I feel like the Academy also has this history of liking to reward creatives who are able to go from the top to the bottom, in a way, because... Like high-budget films to low-budget? Well, more like going from, quote-unquote, low-brow to high-brow. Like, this is a woman who really became in the pop- popular consciousness for the Twilight movies. Mm-hmm. But 
But I will say that they've always been good actors. They just had very crap material. Right. And Kirsten Stewart, more than anybody, has shown that she is definitely one of her the best actresses out there. And I think something like Spencer, which it's a semi-biopic of a fairly well-remembered fig popular figure and it definitely feels like something that the academy does like they do like the sort of biopic film as well i really and hope it's jessica chastain for eyes of tammy faye just to have a a role where she is the lead in a movie mm-hmm. where she isn't the her character isn't the most important and she has a source material of having to act behind this sort of uh character within a character like tammy faye the real person had to act a certain way in real life for the for her like regular life and then the layers of acting that are required between the the layer of oh this is what the character does in this situation okay here's who the character really is okay here's the actual actress just Jessica Chastain in a role where she doesn't have the leading spotlight in the entire movie. I'll be honest. I am actually surprised that Tammy Faye even showed up to be honest, because that was a movie that kind of, the kind of sort of came and went a little bit, but she could end up being a dark horse. I've also have been hearing some positive buzz with Penelope Cruz for parallel mothers. And I haven't personally seen Parallel Mothers, but I've heard she gives a very good performance in that one. Um, but yeah, if I had to say who is more than likely to get it, it's probably Kirsten Stewart. But I think Penelope Cruz is probably going to be like a dark horse. And of course, we know how you feel. Let's go to animated feature, feature film. We have Encanto, Flea, Luca, Mitchells vs. the Machines, and Raya and the Last Dragon. Three of those, Disney. <laughs> yes, and if you know anything about the animated feature film Oscar, it's basically Disney's to lose. So. Yeah, but they can lose it because they lost it to Sony Animation before, especially with Phil Lord. Um, was Christopher Miller or Phil Lord who helped out with Spider-Verse? They both did it. They were No, one of them did it. It was Phil Lord last I checked. Yeah, okay. But now both of them are doing Mitchells versus the Machine. So. Uh, let me just double check here. Yeah, double check that. But, man, that that is a movie that could come out on top because as much as Luca was a great Pixar movie, it was one of the original ones, like new IPs from Pixar tends to do well critically, it was hurt because it went straight to streaming. Ryan the Last Dragon, as good of critical reception as it was, it, there was no lasting buzz. And in Kanto, the buzz just seems to be about the songs, not well, about the story. Well, the one song. Yeah, the one song that Disney didn't even believe in. They believed in a different one. <laughs> well, the thing is, and I was kind of, I looked up about that song situation, I thought, well, considering how popular We Don't Talk About Bruno is, why didn't Disney nominate that? Well, the problem was they had a deadline to meet, and the song didn't blow up until after the deadline. So they just went with their gut. 
when it came to the song choice. They, and they were wrong. And they were wrong, but then again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, sure. But if I did have to pick a movie from this one, I kind of want to say Encanto because the problem with the Academy is that they are very lazy when it comes to the animated feature film because they do kind of push it off as kids stuff. I and think just, Mitchell's Wishes of the Machines has a real shot. I agree with that. I genuinely think that is the one I want to win because that's I, the one. I would be happy if it's either Luca or Mitchell's and the Machines. Because Mitchell's and the Machines had a lot more animation style to it. Like it had mm-hmm. more going forward and just more variety of what it was doing. Very similar to Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to talk about Flea for just a second. That's an animated documentary film uh, about this uh, Afghan refu- uh, Afghan man who fled the country to overseas because of his sexuality. And I thought that's worth talking about because it just sa- it's such a movie that you don't ever hear about that often. I'm glad it was nominated, but let's be mm-hmm. clear. How many people at the Academy watched it? None of them. None of them, I'm afraid. None of them. Yeah. Which is a very crying shame. Um, but um, put a pin in Encanto for now, but I do generally want it to be Mitchell's versus the Machines. Mm. Um, but I want to go ahead and go to the best director now. Uh, that is... A tragedy of who was left out. But yes, uh, I can't we'll, fault any one of the the people that were nominated. No, um, I will say let's go ahead and talk about the snub first. Uh, well, let's talk about the nominations first. We have Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. Good for Kenneth. Ryusuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car. Fantastic. Needs that. They need that um, uh, exposure. They need that marketing. This is good. Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza. It is killing it at the box office. Jane Campion for Power to Dog. Very As good. Mm-hmm. As expected. And, of course, Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. I have a problem with this. Uh, go ahead, please. Uh, it, it, it feels very much like you're giving him a nomination because he's Steven Spielberg and less so for the movie. I will say that... I can understand nominating Spielberg, not because of the name Spielberg, because it's Spielberg, uh, but I do think when you're taking a famous musical like West Side Story and reinterpreting it the way he did, and keep in mind, this is the first time the man has ever actually done a musical, so the fact that he was able to make such a good musical movie for his first go-around is actually really good, but... I do say that when it comes to snubs, it is a crying shame that Denis Villeneuve is not on here. I equate it to the same thing as in, uh, Christopher Nolan and Inception, where, oh, we'll just nominate for everything around the film except the director who made it, whose like, idea it was. <laughs> like, I hadn't put my finger on it, but I do agree that it is a similar situation where you have such a big sci-fi text like dune and a guy who clearly loves 
that text and loves that world, loves that characters, and loves the mythology of Dune. And the fact that the movie gets nominated for Best Picture, Visual Effects, um, the traditional genre awards, but not for directing, is tantamount to ridiculousness. I want to believe there's a little bit of hope because this isn't this is Dune Part One, so right. there can be sequels where he can be. It, this could be a Lord of the Rings situation where we'll we'll give all the awards at the end when right. this is all done. We'll see. Like when it came to Lord of the Rings, they did shoot it all at once, whereas they are taking a bit of time to do Part Two. But uh, well, we we saw the damage it did to Peter Jackson. We don't want the same thing to happen. True. Uh, but when it comes to these, I think it's a two-horse race. I think it's between Campion and Branna. And personally, I think it's going to end up being Jane Campion. The Academy... I did allude earlier that Netflix does... Uh, the Academy doesn't like Netflix. and But in the past, they have awarded the best director to a Netflix movie before with Alfonso Cuaron and Roma. Well, here's the question. Was this always a plan to go to Netflix or was the were they deciding this through COVID? Because that could give them a pass. You know, like, oh, if you were always going to be a Netflix film and Netflix went to you to produce it, well then, I don't know. I, the Academy doesn't think too highly of you. But if you were going to release it in theaters and you saw that the performance was going to be terrible because of COVID, and you decided, well, we might as well get some money from Netflix. Well, the deal was, is looking at this, it had a limited theatrical release in Australia and New Zealand uh, through transmission films. Uh, worldwide distribution was handled by Netflix. And... I just wonder if the production was funded through Netflix versus Netflix just buying them. Um, no, this was done by the New Zealand Film Commission, Bad, Creek, mm. Bad Girl Creek, Max Films, Bright Star, mm-hmm. Seesaw Films, Cross City Films, and BBC Film. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, this is a case where they probably just saw the writing on the wall and said, you know what, let's just take the money from Netflix. Because and, get it, and get it seen by people. It's a smart decision. It's being seen by more people. Um, Netflix, it's a genius decision. Like, grab a film that will probably win Best Picture, um, leading the amount in in nominations. And then for them, it's like, yeah, we'll, we'll take the money because there, it's really a rolling of the dice when it came to box office this year. Like, I think more, and yeah, I do think more than likely it's Campion, but... I wouldn't count Branna out. He has been in the film business for as long as Campion has been when it comes to directing. And he is very well, and he was, is very well liked by a few people. My only question is, is he going to be in a situation like Eddie Murphy a couple of years back where he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Dreamgirls, but then Norbit came out. And it scuttled his chances of getting that uh, award. Is that going to be the same case with uh, Death on the Nile right now? I don't think it's similar. I think, if anything, those uh, Agatha Christie adaptations are what let him do Belfast. The fact that he's working with an ensemble cast, letting them stress their acting muscles, 
led him to cast them in Belfast to trust him as the director. I don't know if he is that well respected as a he's a competent director, obviously. He a, but he is a competent director, but he like the last decade has been like Belfast is his most personal film and more like what you would call a more traditional drama. Yeah, type we film. had we have Death on the Nile, we have Murder on the Orient Express, we have Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, we have Thor. This has come to mind. So, so it feels we'll, like he, he had to kind of prove himself to these ensemble big name actors and actresses that like let him do it. So I don't see Death of the Nile coming out as a affront to cinema. No, and, uh, like, like I only threw it out there just to start a conversation. I haven't seen Death on the Nile yet, but one of my friends has seen it and they liked it very much. I'm excited to see it. I just finished Murder on the Orient Express, and the the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie was not what I was expecting. Like, the, the style of directing. Like, he was very respectful of the source material. He was very respectful of everything happening. And I think that the Academy, like I said earlier, they do like when a person goes from blockbusters to drama and really hitting it off. So I do consider Branagh a dark horse in this race, but more than likely it's going to be Campion. Sorry, I wanted to have one discussion about cinematography. Of course. So we have Greg Frazier for Dune, directed Mm -hmm. the hell out of it. Uh, Dan Lawson for Nightmare Alley, based on trailer shots alone. My God good blocking Ari Wagner power of the dog enough said we've seen like what that movie looks like yeah looks like a dream Bruno Del Bon Del um, Bonnell the tragedy of Macbeth you can attest to that yes it is a gorgeously shot movie. and you can also attest to Janis Kaminsky for West Side Story yes mm. he uh Kaminsky really captured the realness of late 50s Upper West Side and just showing this is a neighborhood that's about to be totaled, changed forever and these are all scrappy people just trying to get by and it is gorgeous to look out. Like, it's gritty but it's not bleak. It's still vibrant and colorful. I wonder if he um, for West Side Story, if Jenis gets the uh, upper hand because it's a musical. It's like. possible, but... It's I hard think... to direct that. It's hard to shoot that very well, like musical numbers. Mm-hmm. There's something to that. Yeah, like, I thought the... Well, actually, I want to check the editing for just a quick second, just to... Mm-hmm. Okay, what in the hell? Uh, uh, what? It was just like a... I just wanted to do a quick check because I was about to bring up the editing in mm-hmm. West Side Story. Which Sorry. It's, it's not nominated, which is... <laughs> kind of insane to me Um, and for some reason don't look up is and i cannot understand how uh, that one had good editing i have my theories but it's that that movie was like a fever dream anyway tick tick boom very good editing very much good editing um um dune was had some good edits uh king richard as well um I do think that this is a, 
like musicals tend to have a big up when it comes to the editing department because it is those are behemoths to try and get under control yeah um but i'm gonna go ahead and probably say power of the dog yeah, I mean, safe bet. I, I, it feels odd because, yeah, the Academy will recognize that a musical with so much movement and action is really hard to edit, but they will never show that same respect to action movies where no. editing matters so much just to show you what is going on frame to frame. There's also a conversation about stunt choreography, but we'll won't get into the weeds of that, but... Going I wanted to have seven. one final category, international feature film, if that's all right. And I just want to talk about two movies very quickly. We have Drive My Car from Japan and The Worst Person in the World from Norway. Drive My Car, nominated for Best Picture, I believe. So that's the front runner for winning right. international film. However, Worst Person in the World is coming up. That is a very high-profile movie now. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, uh, there's a chance. Drive My Car doesn't win and worst person in the world does there's a small chance small chance yeah. um but we'll put a pin and drive my car i am happy that flea is nominated here but i think this is a category of the film's gonna get honored with a nomination but it isn't gonna win anything yeah and i can't comment on hand of god or lunana because i haven't seen those either Hmm. Uh, either of those two uh but i do think this is going to be a drive my car situation and since we didn't actually say what we thought cinematography would go um um i think it's worth talking about visual effects it's a good art uh good discussion to have right now if you want to do it well uh, sure, but i just wanted to point out that we hadn't really said who we thought cinematography would go to ah um I want it to be Bruno Delbano for Tragedy of Macbeth because it is such a gorgeously invocative movie. But no. But is it breaking any boundaries? It's very artistic and it very much looks like a moving stage play. But I think the more nat the naturalism of Power of the Dog might win out. So I'm gonna put my pin in Power of the Dog. I'm going to say West Side Story only because it's a musical. Right. All right, visual effects. Yeah, uh, there, there is enough of a discussion there where we have Dune, we have Free Guy, No Time to Die, Shang-Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings, and Spider-Man No Way Home. Shang-Chi, not a chance. Spider-Man No Way Home, not a chance. No. Um, I want to say because of the type of movie it is, Free Guy is not going to win that. I didn't think it was going to be Free Guy either. It I mean... You all- it's also weird because the CGI was made to look worse because it was a video game world. Right. It's so weird that it got nominated. But but it's really between Dune and No Time to Die. And let's be real honest with ourselves because it's not going to win much else. It's going to go to Dune. Yeah, there's nothing else. That, like, if you compare Dune with every other movie, like there's no reason the Academy would pick anything other than Dune. Because it does show a high degree of style, whereas with No Time to Die, the, the visual effects were integrated so seamlessly into the film that I didn't even know some of those shots were visual effects shots. I think there's another uh, side to this of Dune showing what 
really good sci-fi visual effects can look like where they don't need to look perfect. They can be obstructed through like viewfinders. They can be obstructed with sand that doesn't show the fine grain details and that makes it more believable. There is true genius to how they did special effects in that movie where I am shocked by the budget of that movie. That movie costs less than the Suicide Squad did. And that to visual. me is insane. Yeah. The the sheer visualness of that movie shows like an artist at his best, knowing like exactly where to spend the money and where to say, no, we can cover some details up. It'll be fine. Oh, well, those are how I feel about the Oscars. They are going to be held on March 27th at the uh, Sunday, March 27th at the Dolby Theater. And I'll definitely be checking them out to see who, how many of our predictions end up winning. Yeah, I will not be watching. As usual, I'll just read an article afterwards and hear from you. Of course. <laughs> now, so, let's um, go on to video games where I got two giant stories for you. Oh, yes. We have had... Video- it's only... It was what... There's this meme on the internet with a character from The Adventures of Tintin uh, named Captain Haddock. And yes, he, I've seen it. And he says, boy, what a week. What a week. And mm-hmm. Tintin replies, Captain, it's only Wednesday. <laughs> this is two news from January. And people are like, man, what a year. And I'm returning, guys, it's only January. <laughs> yeah. This is from January 18, 2022, from the official Microsoft news blog. Microsoft will acquire Activision Blizzard for $95 per share in an all-cash transaction valued at $68.7 billion, inclusive of Activision Blizzard's net cash. When the transaction closes, Microsoft will become the world's third largest gaming company by revenue behind Tencent and Sony. That's an important point. The planned acquisition includes iconic franchises from the Activision Blizzard and King Studios like Warcraft, Diablo, Overwatch, Call of Duty, and, of course, Candy Crush. In addition to global esports activities through Major League Gaming, the company has studios around the world with nearly 10,000 employees. Bobby Kotick will continue to serve as CEO of Activision Blizzard, and he and his team will maintain their focus on driving efforts to further strengthen the company's culture and accelerate business growth. Once the deal closes, the Activision Blizzard business will report to Phil Spencer, CEO, Microsoft Gaming. Quite a few things. One, $68.7 billion. I want to point you to a number just to realize how big this is. Microsoft has purchased Activision for $68.7 billion. The Disney-Fox merger that became such a big thing in film and television, that was a deal that was completed for $71 point three billion dollars and disney did not pay all cash they took out loans they it was a mix of cash and stocks for that one this is all cash they also took on debt for that yes they did yeah whereas microsoft as far as i can tell probably isn't going to incur that much debt there is no debt they have a reserve of over a hundred billion dollars sweet jesus so this was a little bit over half of that reserve spent on this. I am flabbergasted. 
Yeah, I mean, we always thought like, oh, Sony is the top dog. Microsoft's just there; it's barely getting by. But we forget. Wait, no, that's Microsoft. They are yeah. way, yeah, way more money than Sony. Like, like we keep forgetting that Microsoft has the Windows operating system that they license out to other companies, and they get a lot of money from that. No, they have Office. That, that's that's it. Trying, that, yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. The license from Office. Yeah, the subscription fee of Office lately. Yeah, they get a lot of money from that. And this makes total sense for Microsoft. One, they wanted a big studio acquisition. No studio was gonna sell. No studio this big was gonna sell. Take Two was like, no, 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 we're we're worth way more. They would have to pay premium. Ubisoft, no, 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 we we avoided Vivendi. We're not going to uh, now sell to you. EA, it's like, no, we're worth so much money. We want a premium on it. Activision Blizzard is the only one in such turmoil that would even consider selling to another company. And so this makes total sense for Microsoft. They were like, we need a big one. This is the one that's available. Yeah, it's bigger than we might have wanted, but hey, we're getting a deal anyway. All Microsoft cares about um, from the highest business point is Azure. Their cloud business needs to be number one priority because that's the profit driver. Yes. To support Azure you need a lot of applications that need cloud services. A big one is Game Pass. Having cloud gaming, having any sort of online gaming infrastructure requires those cloud services, and that is a huge profit margin. Okay, we want Game Pass and video games to use Azure. Well, we need IP. We need to make these games. We need to make Game Pass a thing, especially since they're pushing towards India, where you know mobile streaming is available. Hey, let's buy this gigantic company with a ton of IP, where we can throw a couple mil, uh, tens of millions of dollars to each studio that we have to say, just take this IP and make a small game. You know, a ten-hour experience for Crash. That's enough. It's enough for Game Pass. We don't need the biggest blockbusters or anything. In fact, all they need is a few categories of time sinks, of, you know, like online games that are time sinks, uh, sort of like Destiny um, and World of Warcraft. They need a few titles that branch throughout genres. So they want to have racing games. They want to have shooting games. They want to have third-person action. They want to also have puzzle games. They want to have strategy games. They want a wide breadth. And then finally, they want a few critically acclaimed games. This is the Netflix model where you make it for as cheap as you can. You cover a wide area, a few things that people need to watch, and a few things that people will give cachet to Netflix for. You know, a few Oscar noms here and there, a few shows that are very, very juicy and cheap to produce, think like Too Hot to Handle, and then cover a wide breadth of shows. You know, documentary, stand-up comedy, like this is the model that they are following, and this makes total sense for Microsoft. I do want to mention that there are a few details about the deal that... um, have come out in the couple weeks since and that i do want to talk about bobby kodak for just a moment yes we should touch on that that's another uh point bobby kodak will remain a ceo until this deal closes because a lot of people were like oh he's gonna stick around when this is over hell no no he is out 
He's out. No. He's gone. He is out. He's getting a golden parachute. He is out. Yep. Yeah. Spencer... He got bailed out by Microsoft, and honestly, this is why the board was with him all this time. It's because mm-hmm. they knew this deal was coming, and that their hands are clean now. Microsoft has to deal with this all. I also want to point out how quick this deal came together. This came about in the over the course of two months. They were hurting bad. They were hurting very bad. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this just came together so quickly and the fact that nobody even caught a whiff of this until I, it was announced. I wonder if anyone found out a rumor about this. They just wouldn't believe it. You know, like 70 billion. There's not a chance that happens. Like... We live in a very crazy world now because I don't think a couple of years ago, if you told me Disney was going to buy out 20th Century Fox and a lot of other Fox subsidiaries for $70 billion, I'm like, you're out of your mind. They wouldn't be yeah. that crazy. If you told me Microsoft was going to buy Bethesda, like a, a, that gigantic studio, for whatever price, I'd be like, no, that's impossible. And look what happened. And yeah. I also want to point out that uh, there's this uh, a video game YouTuber named, um, their user is called Scale Up. I don't know if you've heard of him before. No. Um, he's really good. He's like an Australian uh, video gamer, uh, but he covers industry news as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, what he pointed out was um, two things. Was For the Bethesda one, Microsoft spent enough to justify keeping Bethesda stuff exclusive to the Microsoft ecosystem. And I agree with that. But in contrast to this one, which is nearly $70 billion, they kind of have to justify not keeping it exclusive. Okay. Here's the justification. World of Warcraft needs servers. Yes. We'll get a giant player base because of Game Pass. There's no reason to leave them off PC at all. And let's not forget mobile. We now have King, who makes the highest profitable mobile game, Candy Crush. They can go off, hire however many people they want, take any of the IPs Microsoft owns, and turn out mobile games. Mm-hmm. Extra revenue. The uh, my I'm playing devil's advocate of taking Call of Duty off of PlayStation, of taking Overwatch off of PlayStation, of taking Diablo off of PlayStation. What does it get you? Not to buy Xboxes, but to say, hey, if you want to play these games, you need Game Pass. PlayStation will give you these games, but only through Game Pass. You want a cut of that revenue, right? You want those Call of Duty DLC sales, right? The problem I see with it, to be honest, is that Call of Duty sells extremely well on PlayStation already. And just cutting it off from PlayStation completely... Well, not completely. It depends on if they ever put Game Pass on the PlayStation, which... I have a very hard time believing that will ever happen. I believe Microsoft will strong arm them until it has to happen. I knew you were going to say that because I wanted to point out, and this is actually something Microsoft themselves have pointed out, mm-hmm. is that even with the Activision purchase, they're still only going to be the number three in games. 
that's important by revenue, not by profit. And that is very important for antitrust legislation. Right. But please don't block this deal. (laughs) But that's basically their argument is that they realize, okay, we really have to very much justify this one. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the um, antitrust people are going to take a Mm -hmm. hard look at this one and Mm -hmm. see if this is even reasonable. And, hey, it happened with uh, Fox, the Fox Disney deal where Disney had to sell off different parts of Fox to be like, yeah, we can't have it. So Sky needs to go somewhere else. Right. But even in that case, you had a administration at the time who was very much pro-business, whereas the current administration is a little bit is more willing to scrutinize a bit more. I don't think the current the administration matters too much. There's obviously influences, but in general, the same people kind of do kind of run the organizations. Yes, you can change the leader on top, but to have that leadership vision change trickle down that takes time and Mm -hmm. i don't think looking at the current administration will really say it too much about what regulatory is going to do i think it's just seeing what regulatory has been doing which to your point they have been getting more and more scrutinizing right but their Uh, main focus has been on tech monopolies not video game monopolies think meta think google think apple that's where their focus has really gone and I thought it was kind of interesting that even that since we brought up Call of Duty earlier, that Microsoft has already come out and said they are planning to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation beyond existing agreements. And they, no, they did not say that we guarantee you that Call of Duty will stay on PlayStation. They're saying we have no plans to take it off PlayStation even past the agreements, which is not a yes or no. And here's the thing, like, I feel like in this case, it is one of those too big to take off situations. Like, I genuinely, like, I know I've made fun about the whole Bethesda, Elder Scrolls, uh, Doom, and stuff long ago when we talked about this before. And I've kind of come around to it that they've spent enough money to justify keeping it exclusive. This case it's a lot of money, Paul. It is a lot of money. All I'm saying is when we look at this price tag, right? We obviously put Call of Duty as number one, but it is not number one. It is like one out of 20 equal pieces. The other pieces of which they don't need to be on PlayStation. So yes, there's a little bit of a loss taking Call of Duty off of PlayStation, but my argument is it is nowhere near big enough for them to be like, oh, we spent all this money. Call of Duty needs to be on PlayStation. No, but, no, no. But I'm also wanted to point out that how popular is World of Warcraft still? Not as popular as it was, which is a key point. That how popular it, how is Overwatch doing? Not as popular as before. And, and how popular Overwatch- is Call of Duty? Where is Overwatch 2? Still in development hell. I call I would actually call that vaporware at this point. I mean um, the lead the lead director left, so yeah, who knows. But uh, where's Call of Duty right now? Vanguard did not sell that well. That's true. 
No, yeah. Vanguard, now to be clear, Vanguard and, uh, oh god, what was the last one, Cold War, were still the top two selling games of the last year. However, yeah. Vanguard did not sell as well as Cold War. Mm-hmm. And according to a UK chart, it said it apparently got outsold by Cold War. Last I checked, they were very close together. Um, they were, close they were the top two games. the The difference being, like, it wasn't, it isn't the mega sale that it was years ago. Meaning, the percentage of gamers still playing that game has shrunk. Now, to be clear, the pie of gamers has increased a lot. That's why it still shows like it's selling more and more and more. But the percentage has in- decreased. So I'm hopeful that over time, Microsoft looks at this and sees like the writing's on the wall. People are kind of tired of Call of Duty the way it's been going. You can shake it up. You can create different spinoffs of different mechanics of different games. Whatever they think would work. Maybe and it doesn't have to be on PlayStation. And you can take it off the yearly schedule and maybe even you could and maybe even do something radical with the formula. Like I remember a couple years back, Sledgehammer Games before they were forced to do um was it Infinite Warfare or Advanced? Infinite Warfare, Warfare and then they did World War Two. They were apparently gonna do a third person shooter game that was gonna be set during the Vietnam War. Could we do see that was gone. Like that? Well, it's gone now, but yeah, but maybe yeah, somebody could revisit that idea. Yeah, maybe a studio that w- would be more competent in doing third-person shooter could do it. Right. Like, what what I mean by that is not that that uh, that studio wasn't competent enough, but if they wanted to make a Call of Duty strategy game, they have made Halo into strategy games already. Mm-hmm. So, like, there are avenues to take this. And this idea that Call of Duty needs to be on PlayStation because it's just so much money. It's just so much money. I think that's a fallacy because, again, this is a cash deal. Microsoft paid for it. That's fine. They need to justify for Azure. They don't need to justify for the dollar cost. All they care about is that one metric of, sorry, couple metrics. Is the Game Pass subscriber number going up? Is the Azure uh, business going up? That is what drives their stock price. It isn't, hey, here's how much money we made in our gaming division. It is like, Game Pass subscribers. It is going to be the subscription numbers that are going to matter in the long run, not the actual revenue from a Call of Duty purchase. That's and then not- look at it a different way. Let's say you are a PlayStation gamer and you lost Call of Duty, right? Like, I really want to play it. So Microsoft has said, okay. You could buy an Xbox. We have a cheap version, way cheaper than the PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5 digital, like the $300 box. You you have a PC, you can play it on there. You If you have a PC or a tablet or a phone, you could stream it on there. All you have to do is subscribe to Game Pass. And again, that's going to be like... And that's going to be interesting because we've seen PlayStation is more open to doing PC stuff lately. Like we've seen horizon and we've seen god of war just came on to pc let's not forget uncharted on the uncharted lost legacy collection it was released ps5 and pc but i'd argue they're extra safe like years have passed we're not losing any playstation sales by putting it on pc then we'll do it and then of course we do have the 
we do have the talk of PlayStation launching its own version of Game Pass, but um, it's not just conjecture at the moment. Um, but I do think this does bring us to Sony again with the next story, don't you think? Uh, let's see. I want to touch on esports okay. very quickly. I know Microsoft tried to do to make Halo an esport many times, but I think the biggest success story with esports comes well, partially StarCraft and then Overwatch. Those are the two success stories, and this is also part of what they probably get. What Microsoft gets out of this deal is this push into esports. Like, okay, you guys know what you're doing. It's all under the same umbrella. We'll have a Halo tournament. We'll have Overwatch tournament. We'll have this tournament. On and on and on. And again, we're back to this idea of like following the Netflix strategy of we need originals. We don't care what we have to pay. We don't care what debt we need to take. We need original content because we see the writings on the wall. We know where this is going. And they saw far ahead of everybody. Sony coming up with their uh, subscription service. Now it's just a context, a contest of which subscription offers more original content. Right. And I wouldn't be surprised if there comes a time where there are Game Pass exclusive games. You cannot buy it separately. It's part of the subscription only. That is going to be fascinating if mm -hmm. and when that happens. That's I think they're going to start with small games, like the ones people can't get mad at. You know, like, oh, this $10 game, I can't buy it separately. All right, I'll subscribe for like a month or something. But eventually it'll go to like the more pricier games. Like this is a triple A game that's exclusive to a subscription. I fear that day, but I think that's where it's headed. Well, I'm going to try and keep my physical media as long as I can. All um, right, so like the next story you wanted to go towards with Sony, we have the story. Sony buys Bungie. This is Brendan Sinclair from GamesIndustry.biz. Sony Interactive Entertainment today announced a deal to acquire Bungie for $3.6 billion, the latest in a string of big-ticket consolidation deals in the game industry. After the deal closes, Bungie will be, quote, an independent subsidiary, end quote, of SIE run by a board of directors consisting of current CEO and chairman Pete Parsons and the rest of the studio's current management team. Sony has said Bungie will remain a multi-platform studio with the option to, quote, with the option, quote, to self-publish and reach players wherever they choose to play, end quote. So, uh, quick things just to go by. $3.6 billion. At this point, doesn't seem that big when we came from $68 billion. But that's still a high number. Like um, that's, that's, that's nearly the same amount of money Microsoft paid for Bethesda. And that was a Half of that, yeah. Half of that. And that was a lot more studios with that yeah. one. This yeah. is just the one. That's definitely true. I wanted to check something. I believe it was in the hundreds of millions that Sony paid for Insomniac mm -hmm. that made the highest selling PS4 game to date. Like that 3.6 billion still pales in compare. It's still so much bigger than what they have been spending for studios. So for them, this is the level, this is the equivalent level of Microsoft's acquisition of Activision. Mm -hmm. They're just playing in like, 10x levels of money but it's the same level of well this is a stretch that we went and got this company it must be important 
they are an independent subsidiary. I think it's similar to the um, Respawn EA deal where Respawn gets to do all, all the products they want to do. They don't have to use that horrible dice engine to make every game. They can just use Unreal and they get to release the way they want to. They have that autonomy. So that that's good. We're, leave, we're letting a company be its own thing and handling the way they want without the pressures of Sony. And then finally, just to be clear, they are a multi-platform studio. So if they want, Sony's not going to publish on Xbox, but Bungie could under like the that, Bungie publishing. Like, that is the most fascinating thing. Like, it is such... Like, compared to what we were just talking about, that was more of an outright purchase, and Activision essentially becomes part of the Microsoft ecosystem. Whereas when it comes to uh, PlayStation and Bungie... It's like a second-party relationship. It's more of a... You go ahead. I, I think it depends on where the companies are coming from. Activision Blizzard is in turmoil, so they'll take any deal. Bungie is not in turmoil. It's in a good place, and they were owned by Microsoft before. They know what it's like to be fully owned, and they're like, we don't want any part of this. We were tired of making Halo, but Microsoft forced us to make Halo. So we're, we're, we're done with this type of structure we need to be independent we want to make other ip we want to put destiny on xbox are you going to come in and stop us we want it on on in writing that you're not so that's where it leads to so those are like the three items that 3.6 billion huge for sony it's an independent subsidiary and it can remain multi-platform and i thought it was fascinating looking at the fine tube details is what like Sony was offering, hey, we're a big company. We can offer you the resources to really expand your studio the way that you want it to expand. And we also have film and television. We are experts at that sort of thing. And we can offer you a Destiny TV show or a Destiny movie. Maybe we can even help expand that new IP you guys are wanted to work on. I mean, credits to Sony. They are taking that Uncharted movie and lining it up with this PS5 PC release of the of the Legacy Collection perfectly. They're doing it. They are leveraging their games for film and TV and leveraging film and TV for games. So there's no reason why Sony couldn't make a bunch of uh, Destiny property in t- film or TV. I did want to go back really quickly. The purchasing. Sony purchased Insomniac Games for $229 million. And that paid off huge. Yes. So, three point six billion needs to be compared to that. It doesn't need to be compared to Microsoft's deals. No, it, totally separate worlds. And I think there is the fact that this is a, this is a studio that specializes in multiplayer. So That's correct. Been... So there there's been uh, Jack Ryan. Not, <laughs> it's not Jack Ryan. Um, the CEO of of uh, PlayStation. Jim Ryan, he has gone on an interview to say, like, this is the reason we bought Bungie, their multiplayer expertise, which goes back to the subscription model. We need multiplayer games that people will play. And and also the fact that the the things that have made the most revenue for Sony have been giant multiplayer games and the DLCs for them. So Fortnite, all giant cash cow for Sony, not just Epic on PlayStation. Destiny, um overwatch like money is coming out of these long-term online games so 
I see why one, it's the current business model, but also in the future when it becomes subscription based, it'll also play a role in that. And clearly with 3.6 billion, they care a lot about this. Because you can tell that Sony wants to expand their portfolio because they are the AAA single player exclusive studio in a way. They have Ghost of Tsushima. They have Horizon Zero, the Horizon franchise, God of War, The Last of Us. With Bungie, I feel like they're going to pick their brains a little bit. They're going to say, all right, mm-hmm. how do you do a multiplayer live service like this? How are you able to sustain that over several years? Mm-hmm. Because... I guarantee you they're probably working on a multiplayer version of Horizon at this moment. They are hiring in different studios for multiplayer games. Because so. I, And there is talk that Naughty Dog's next follow-up to Last of Us Part Two was a multiplayer version of The Last of Us. And Ghost of Tsushima Legends was extremely popular. That was a multiplayer game. But very short-lived. A very short-lived one. So but popular, popular, but short lived. And I think Sony realizes, hey, if we could somehow sustain that, how can we do that? I and think it's very telling. Like um, Last of Us Part Two came out one month bef- before Ghost of Tsushima. Right. Mm-hmm. At this at this current time, Ghost of Tsushima retails for $40 usually after sales. Mm-hmm. Last of Us Part Two, 20. There is a loss in value. Um, just based on now you might think oh it's a bigger game or is this or that I say it is a Legends component that it, it pushed that longevity a little bit longer which in which stuck in people's head as this game is worth more I agree I genuinely agree that the Legends component does help helped it retain its value a lot more mm-hmm. and also I think I feel like they probably made a little bit more from Ghost of Tsushima because it also had a dedicated PS5 version as well as well as that expansion DLC that they did for that as well Mm -hmm. they're they're working on how to pay for upgrades to the new console Um, it's debatable whether it's a good thing or not Uh, Microsoft just said no every upgrade is free Uh, whereas Sony is saying like no we want to charge $10 extra like hell the uh, Uncharted Lost Legacy legacy collection i had to pay ten dollar for an upgrade well it's funny because i was saw for horizon forbidden west that if you got the ps4 one you could upgrade to ps5 for free that is a very limited deal meaning um they were going to allow that for the first year of games to for forbidden west got pushed so they were saying, well, it's not the first year anymore, so it won't be a free upgrade. There was outrage. So they said, okay, for this one game, we will allow free upgrades. But I don't think that's going to come to God of War. We'll put a pin in that, and we'll see what happens with God of War. But it is worth I've, pointing out. But I mean, there is an outrage over the uh, legacy collection for Uncharted, which just adds a few more performance modes. Uh, there was an outrage for Ghost of Tsushima, which you literally paid the $10 upgrade only to get haptic feedback on the triggers. Like, that, like the, the Was that really the case? I mean, the PS4 version was already upgraded to run at 60 frames per second. So either buy PS4, play totally fine, 
or get the PS5 upgrade and get a few extra features like 3D audio and the feedback on the controller. And so there wasn't that much outrage. There were articles saying like, hey, this is bad. Like Sony's charging for these technical upgrades, something that PC never does and Xbox said no to. But people didn't care. It was low enough of a charge that people didn't care. Like if it were like an extreme surcharge, like this isn't forty dollars like Assassin's Creed Valhalla is doing for that expansion. No, there was an example of a really bad one, which was Control, which was mm-hmm. you bought the game, cool, you can't get the next gen version, you can't upgrade to that, you have to buy the Game of the Year edition with the DLC. Your current DLC you might have bought, doesn't matter. You just have to buy it again. And that caused a lot of outrage for Control. That is wild to me. Um, But we are kind of getting a little sidetracked with this. Uh, But it is that, but I think it is really cool about this Bungie deal. But something I want to point out is that this was a deal that was in the works for a year. I have seen some people think, oh, this is an odd clapback against Microsoft for Activision. Yeah. And I'm like, guys. They're not related at all. These are, this is just a cosmic coincidence. Yes. This has nothing to do with the other. Sony's not even getting exclusivity from Destiny 2, the game no. they have. No, like, guys, if you pay, read the fine print and realize the time frames, this has jack all to do with Microsoft. Yeah. It is literally nothing to do with it. But there is one very sim- uh, similar case, which is mm-hmm. the issues surrounding Activision Blizzard, the workplace culture, yes. were also happening at Bungie to a yes. l- much lesser degree, but they did exist. They do still exist. They're trying to weed that out. So in both cases, Sony and Microsoft have to weed out the, the terrible cultures in both mm-hmm. cases and try to get as much value they can extract from it in totally different ways. In a weird way, the same business model, but different value points. Microsoft, like I said, Game Pass numbers, Azure revenue. Sony, how many new experiences in in multiplayer can we get out of this? And that is very different tracks that the two companies are tackling on, and I am curious how this is going to affect what, sony's game pass competitor is eventually going to look like like is that eventually going to come to pc is that going to be uh something where they buy a big company to get their ip onto that service like and that's actually something i wanted to bring up to you is bungie was something that was in the works for a while and as you noted jim ryan also said in that same interview that we are looking at further acquisitions this is not the end of it what do you think Sony can go from here? Well, we have to look at the... They're, Microsoft and Sony are kind of playing similar games, so what I see Sony missing out on is the mobile revenue. They are missing out on that. Even Nintendo went and got that mobile revenue with like Fire Emblem Heroes and things like that. Like Sony's missing out. So I do think a big-time mobile publisher acquisition isn't is going to be coming down the problem is sony wants to buy good studios they don't just buy any microsoft will buy anyone and nintendo will work with anyone but sony wants to buy the cream of the crop the ones they have worked with in the past like insomniac they've had they had long relationships 
like um, Housemark from Resogun Glory Days. Like they have good relationships. Okay, let's acquire them. They know what they're getting into. Everybody will say happy. Um, Bungie through Activision, they have worked somewhat together about like you know getting certain DLC out. It makes sense. I don't remember Sony having a relationship with any mobile developer. So no. who would they possibly go to? They um, definitely don't need any more first-party, third-person action games. No. So. I feel like just kind of looking at, I was looking at a list earlier about what companies were left that a company could potentially, a Sony could potentially buy. Um, if they did want to consolidate, because this is a big thing that's going to be not a bug, but a feature in the future is the video game industry will consolidate like media and TV has, <laughs> is who, what big studio would they buy? And I think a lot of people have kind of pointed out that it's more than likely going to be a Japanese publisher. Mm -hmm. And really, it's yeah. going to be either Square or Konami. A lot of people no. throw out Konami, no. but... I, I disagree. I think it's either Square or Atlas. I think it's going to be Square, personally, because that is a relationship that goes back to the mid-1990s. But you have to look at it the other way. Sony really cares about exclusivity. Is Square going to Microsoft anytime soon? Not really. No like, one in Japan buys an Xbox. They literally sell them as 4K Blu-ray players. And here's the thing. What if Microsoft decides to buy a Japanese studio to guarantee getting into the Japanese market? Sure. That Japanese studio is going out of business. Hard. What about game? Huh? Well, you, well, as you point out, what about Game Pass? As much as like a great value it is, Microsoft has struggled so hard in Japan that it's close to impossible, like no matter how much goodwill they might give. The benefits of buying that Japanese studio will be in Japan, you have to leave it on PlayStation, those games. But everywhere else, you can make it exclusive. That, that That's a weird place to be in, and I don't think they're going to do that. But Sony, I don't think, wants to spend the type of money it has to for Square. I think they're willing to buy Atlas, though, to get the Persona franchise, to get the Shin Megami Tensei franchise. I thought Atlas was a subsidiary of Sega. It's its own company? I want to check this out. I don't know for sure, but uh, you can check it out. But, yeah, when we're talking about, like, acquisitions, I... I look at like Sony has a big presence in the UK. Yeah, and it's, a, it's a subsidiary of Sega. Okay, they might just buy the subsidiary then. There's no way Sony buys Sega at all. No. There is no way. Um, I really don't see. In that case, Konami seems to make more and more sense in the sense of like, hey, listen, we're gonna make a deal with you. You get to keep this IP for your pachinko machines. But we own the IP for video games. That's Forever. how I like. That's how I saw when the prospect of a Konami purchase cropped up. Is <laughs> that Konami really likes doing pachinko, and they yeah. want the IP to sell the pachinko. Yes, but they're not really making video games anymore. And what, I what's see... what's really interesting is the video game portion of the IP sells pachinko machines. The pachinko side of the IP doesn't affect video games. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't lower our our idea of Metal Gear by seeing Metal Gear Pachinko machines at all, no. or in any way. So, all, and I'm sure Sony would love to give the Metal Gear One remake 
to Blue Point so bad. And here's the thing. Metal Gear Solid 6, directed by Hideo Kojima. Exclusive he will never. You don't think? Nope. Don't he, think will he will never go back to Metal Gear. The most, he'll give a blessing to Sony. Like, sure, you, you take it, the franchise where you think it needs to go. But he will never touch that thing again. You fit, even after he got screwed by Konami, you don't think he wouldn't want to have it? I, don't, I think he was done with Metal Gear for the longest time. He wanted to make different games. And Konami said, no, make a no. Metal Gear game. So, there, so he had to be like, all right, I'll make the, the game I want in the Metal Gear franchise. Remember Metal Gear Solid 2? That that was a third-person action game. That was not a shooter. That was, he had to, like, s- squish it in. It's pretty much. Um, <laughs> what do you think of the idea of Sony trying to get a hold of Ubisoft? Because That's... the reason I... Br- because I bring up Ubisoft because it... To me, it's in a very similar situation as Activision. Horrific workplace culture. Their recent games have not been selling as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Far Cry 6 was met with mixed reception. And mm-hmm. the fact that we don't have that many sales figures for that game tells you a lot already. Yeah, only I keep IP... seeing piles of that in like the local Target, just and, waiting. And the only IP that they know is Surefire is Assassin's Creed, which is why they're extending the life cycle of Valhalla with this mm-hmm. Dawn of Ragnarok DLC. And why mm-hmm. they're charging that thing for $40, I, mm-hmm. I add, when the previous DLCs were only 20 bucks a pop. I have to wonder if that might be something on the cards where they'd be desperate to do that. But the reason I hesitate, and I know you're going to say this, is the Vivendi stock takeover and just no. that the Gimos just... Something else. Oh, what do you think? I'm thinking about how much of Ubisoft revenue comes from PC with Rainbow Six Siege, with how much they pushed into stuff like Hyperscape, which failed horribly. But they are pushing to this place where they don't need to be on console. They don't see PlayStation as like a big moneymaker the way Bungie definitely does, right? Mm -hmm. So I see them looking at it like, okay, all our stuff will be on PlayStation. Well, that's very limiting, are we going to be worth as much anymore if that's the way it is? Like, and yet to be clear, yeah, they'll be on PlayStation. They could be on PC, but it's not the same as Microsoft. Microsoft's just like, do whatever you want. Maybe don't put on PlayStation. That's it, really. Right. So, like, Microsoft now will own studios that will just make things for PC mm-hmm. and just make things for mobile. They won't touch Xbox, and Microsoft's happy with that. They're yeah, fine. Like, like, that's kind of been the thing is that some of the Activision people, like Blizzard in particular, I associate those games more with PC than I've ever done with a console. So like, that was not a major... An Xbox can use a, a mouse and keyboard. You're not going to put World of Warcraft on it. You're not no. going to. No. Yeah. No. Never in a million years. Yeah. Um, but I do bring up Ubisoft because, like I said, it is in a very similar situation to Activision at the moment where its reputation and it's hurting but I don't think they're in as bad of a place and I and the the real key is Sony doesn't want to pay that much right but in theory like here's the thing we live in a world Mm -hmm. where Microsoft just bought Activision I think anything is on the table at this point 
Microsoft was willing to pay that much. Sony is still very conservative with their money and who they spend it on. A more realistic one, I think, is Remedy. Remedy has made like um, good, competent shooters before. Uh, Remedy has not such a good history of Microsoft with like the whole Alan Wake franchise and things like that. And Control was on. It was the last gen version was on Game Pass, but the next gen version was on PlayStation Plus. Like, just own it right off the bat. So. There is something there. The only caveat is Microsoft currently has a deal with them of like Crossfire X single player yeah. side, but I still see it like Sony can buy Remedy. Like, I could, I could like that hasn't been. I don't think Remedy has been brought up as much because a lot of no. people have been focusing on the bigger companies. But yeah, I, I only focus on the smaller ones because this is yeah. Sony and that's how yeah. they operate. Yeah, and I only. And the reason I only brought up Ubisoft was because I did think they were in a very similar situation. but And also because Ubisoft, and this is like a feature of them, is that they always try to jump on any revenue stream that they think can make money. So I have to... Yeah, they follow that. every single trend to their detriment. But... NFTs? Yes. But the, the only time I say it, this is so different than Activision Blizzard is because Activision Blizzard's reputation is known by everyone ubisoft isn't known by everyone ubisoft is somewhat trying to make a change they're barely trying while activision has been like let's just ignore it as much as possible right there is a difference on that activision's problem started long before with just blizzard turning horrible with taking the studios you built for the worst reason which was um Toys for Bob and Vicarious Visions were made for Skylanders. Like, just to sell stuff to kids. And then they're like, alright, I guess we could sell use this for, like, Spyro, Crash, and these games. And then they didn't sell quite as well. So they're off the table. And those types of decisions give the gamers a sour taste of Activision. That just cannot be washed away. Where it's like, why am I buying the latest Call of Duty? Just Why? Why am, why am I paying for World of Warcraft? I'm not having fun. They're, why bother with Overwatch? It's, we're never going to get a sequel. Whereas Ubisoft, it's just a string of a few bad games that have just, just, just kept coming out because they're not changing the formula enough. And I think that has to do with part of the culture. Of like, once that culture changes, those decision changes. Right? Like, and, also, and, and also, we've just kind of been like, we hear about these games that have been in various stages of development hell or are out like vaporware at this point, like Beyond Good and Evil 2. Last time we mm -hmm. saw anything about that, that was, what, 2017? As far as I know, the community is still helping to develop it. Which I have no idea what the hell's going on with that because that director left Ubisoft when the uh, sex scandals started. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we recently got verification that they're working on an Avatar game. Which, which okay that, and we didn't see any gameplay no in-game footage just a cg trailer that was done in-game engine but it's still a cg trailer. i do not count in-engine footage in-game yeah, okay. is one okay. thing in-engine is something yeah. else uh and that's being done by the division people which is a fascinating choice remember uh, always remember anthem was in-engine yes yes and of course, uh, 
the one game I'm personally interested in is the Prince of Persia Sands of Time remake because it looked so horrible in its reveal trailer. <laughs> yeah. They decided, we're going to delay this until the end of time so that it looks good. <laughs> yeah. Everybody will be dead by then. Man, they would love to bring Prince of Persia back. I don't think it's possible because Assassin's Creed is that, but whatever. It, 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 like, that is the thing. When Assassin's Creed was first being developed, it was intended to be a Prince of Persia game mm-hmm. uh, where you play an assassin protecting the prince instead. And of look at that. They took a risk. They went with a different type of story, and it paid off big time. Now they don't want to take any ri- more risks. They, they just want to follow a trend. They want to copy the Witcher 3 formula for Assassin's Creed, although there is signs that even they realize they may have hit the end of the road if if the news of this new Assassin's Creed game is to be believed. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the Infinity one, but a new one that just was announced. Oh, right, that one. I know which one you're uh, talking which, about, yeah. Which I have looked into it about this potential setting. It is deeply fascinating if what they say, if the reports are true, but... Again, setting was never a problem in Assassin's Creed. It no, was, it was gameplay. The underlying gameplay, but yeah. the fact that it is supposedly more stealth focused and not an R- open world RPG anymore is deeply fascinating to me. But I'll believe it when I see it. All right, um, I think we've talked a lot at length about these acquisitions and what's possible. Yes. yes. Why don't you take um, me back to more movie news? Yes. Um, so I alluded to earlier that Warner Brothers was kind of having a bad day and we're hope had a fairly interesting 2021 where they did day and date release on both theatrical and HBO Max and how they got a lot of flack for it. And if they were hoping 2022 was going to be any better, that is not going to happen. So this comes to us from The Guardian, uh, writer Benjamin Lee. Warner Brothers sued over abysmal Matrix Resurrections release. Production company Village Roadshow says December release of sci-fi sequel was ruined by a simultaneous streaming release in the United States. Quote, Warner Brothers is being sued by co-financiers Village Roadshow over the hybrid release of the sci-fi sequel The Matrix Resurrections. As with all of Warner's 2021 titles, the fourth Matrix film was released on the big screen and the company's streaming service, HBO Max, as a response to the pandemic. A complaint has been put forward by Village Roadshow, claiming that the decision destroyed any box office chances in December. The Matrix Resurrections, which reunited stars Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss, made only $37 million in the United States and has just crossed $153 million worldwide. And the budget is believed to be around $190 million. That movie costs more than Dune. That is wild. Um, to put that in perspective, The Matrix Reloaded, which is the highest performing of the franchise, made more than $740 million back in 2003. Uh, to quote the suit, WB's strategy not only ensured that The Matrix Resurrections would be a bust at the box office, but it also inflicted serious harm to the entire Matrix franchise. There could be no doubt that the abysmal theatrical box office sales figures from The Matrix Resurrections dilute the value of this temple franchise as a film's lack of profitability generally prevents studios from investing in additional sequels in derivative films in the near term. So, 
And that is actually the beginning of the suit. Bill uh, Drocho further alleges that WB moved Matrix to HBO Max late to that late December release from an initial April 2022 release to maximize subscription numbers. It claims breach of contract and that the studio is attempting to deprive them of rights to franchises that they co-own. Bill Drocho has been a co-production partner of Warner Brothers for nearly 30 years now. And some of those attempts to deprive him of rights allegedly include an Edge of Tomorrow TV series that was apparently planned and trying to deprive him of the rights to the Tim Burton version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. There is currently a Willy Wonka musical prequel that stars Timothy Chalamet that is currently filming that isn't intended to be a prequel to the Burton version, but there does appear to be some design elements borrowed from that particular interpretation. And in my mind, this is probably the culmination of a very bad year, if we're honest. Because while you had had bright spots like Dune, um, Warner Brothers used to have this reputation as a filmmaker studio. That, if it's not completely broken, it's definitely shaken. Because remember, they had a lot of problems with... They had a problem with Legendary last year over the day and date release as well when it came to Godzilla versus Kong, but that never went to court. They sell that pretty quietly. And Villeneuve and, and Denis Villeneuve and Christopher Nolan both criticized the move, and Nolan himself, as you and I know, decided to jump over to Universal to make his Robert Oppenheimer movie. So, Paul. This seems like the combination of really bad financial decisions that yes, indeed. these leaders made that I don't know if they're being held accountable for because that's just business, but it kind of makes more sense now why HBO Max is being sold to Discovery Plus. The bigger thing is being sold to the smaller thing because the people running the bigger thing don't know how to do it properly. And I can't tell if you can blame at and Well, you can blame AT&T corporate. 100% you can blame them. Because I have no idea what control Warner Brothers themselves had over this. I mean, the suit is Warner Brothers, but they may as well be saying suing AT&T at this point. They, they need to. AT&T was the one that cared so much about HBO Max numbers. Mm-hmm. Oh, this will help us sell all our other services. And, like, c- help us replace DirecTV. Like, yeah, all right, sure. <laughs> um, Man. I also want to point out that the, that the uh, Guardian article also has numbers from it that HBO Max had gained more than 5 million U.S. subscribers in 2021, up 35% over the last 24 months. 5 million times 10, 50 million per month. That is quite a sizable chunk. Doesn't make up for the box office performance. And you're going to have these issues where, you know, like Village Roadshow, they don't know the real performance of this movie in HBO Max. So they can't argue for a cut. And that is something I wanted to bring up, is that the case is somewhat similar to what Scarlett Johansson was going for um, when she sued Disney, but hers was a little simpler. Like, this one's a little bit more complex, and there's a lot more moving pieces involved. And this mm-hmm. goes into exhibition, the value of IP, and... Who controls these decisions? So, like... The decision you said, like, we're going to move from April to December. Why? Because of our streaming numbers. Okay, 
that benefits you, it doesn't necessarily benefit us, Village Roadshow. So do you get to make that decision unilaterally? Do we have no say in you using our IP this way? Like, it's easier to make a simple story about a worker versus a studio. An actress feel, uh, trying to sue to get the money that she was owed for a movie. This is basically a studio versus studio trying to lock horns with one another. And we get into the, we start scratching into the surface of back-end negotiation and how it belays a more complex idea is what is the value of an IP and what is the production partner entitled to? Because Village Roadshow has been a production partner of Warner Brothers for nearly 30 years now, if not over 30 years now, and they have been the co-financiers for some of Warner Brothers' biggest hits in the 21st century. They co-financed the Oceans movies. They did Edge Tomorrow. Uh, they um, obviously did the Matrix movies. They've had their hands in a lot of Warner Brothers' most successful movies, uh, but they did co-finance them, and there is the possibility that they may have co-ownership of some of these IPs. Yeah, this comes back to this horrible decision-making with Warner Brothers, mainly AT&T, of... Oh, we're going to make this blanket statement. Every movie this year will be day-and-day day streaming. Okay, what are the small issues that come out of this? Oh, we'll deal with them as they come. Are you sure? Because this has long-lasting effects. Because we've heard about how uh, Warner Brothers made a deal with Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot for Wonder Woman 1984 for uh, December 2020. Um then we hear them making a deal with Legendary. Then we hear them uh, working out a financial settlement with L Lily Wachowski, Keanu Reeves for Matrix. And I'm sure there were discussions with Denis Villeneuve to make sure that that thing got on as many damn screens as possible and not piss him off because they already lost Christopher Nolan. Uh, but this one, feel but it just kind of shows like they were so enamored with making sure HBO Max was successful, that they completely forgot about, hey, we didn't produce these all by ourselves. Yeah, it, it comes back to that leadership that believes, oh, we're the big company, we own it all. No, you don't. No. And small things like losing Nolan come back hard. And, you, and I feel like Universal... Like, I have no idea how Oppenheimer is going to do. I'm sure it's good. That's out the window, but Universal can say, hey, we have one of the best directors of the 21st century working for us. Hold on. One of the few directors that has not made a flop yet. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's worth a lot when you're financing movies. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Christopher Nolan is one of those names that is slowly becoming on par with a Steven Spielberg, almost. Absolutely. Almost. That's the name I was thinking of. Yep. That is the name we're thinking of. Like, it's one mm -hmm. of those, when you think of a film director, you think, Nolan. Yeah. Like Kubrick. He's following like Kubrick. that formula. Yeah. Like Kubrick, like Scorsese, mm -hmm. like Spielberg. He... 
is one of those directors. Yes. And Universal, to lose that, oof. That is going to come back to bite you. You don't think, oh, it's probably just the one movie. Um, it, can't, it reminds me of how Warner Brothers decades ago went out of their way to say, hey, to Clint Eastwood, stay with us. And, he met, and Clint Eastwood ended up making some of his best movies with Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Best performing that, movies, too. Exactly. Unforgiven was a Warner Brothers movie. American Sniper is a Warner Brothers box office hit. Yeah, all of them box yeah. office hits. If and I kind of feel like Nolan's Nolan is a young man. He could make Universalist permanent home going forward. And let's let's not just forget he's not the one who's just making movies. He's helping with production. Remember Man of Steel? He was produced. Yep. He was an executive producer on that. You lose that for DC. You lose Nolan as a, even potential producer on these movies that like we talk about directors but very good producer very well crafted and attracting talent both in front of and behind the camera Mm -hmm. that is going to come back to bite warner brothers they don't think so right now but it will years down Mm -hmm. the line Mm -hmm. and i do feel like this just belays the fact that something at the top has fundamentally broken over at Warner Brothers. A T N T. And we'll see if Discovery can do anything about it to clean house. Because I feel like someone's head is going to roll. <laughs> no. It, no one's head's going to roll. They're, they'll be out of a job. It'll be fine. Well, that's usually what I mean. I don't mean literal heads. No, what I mean is, like, they lose their job and they don't care because they made so much. So, whatever. Yeah. But that is kind of how I feel about Village Roadshow. That is a well-established partner that if this thing goes to trial and it turns ugly, that's a partner they'll never get back. Mm. And it is a partner they've had going back decades and we're behind some of their biggest hits. It, to mm-hmm. lose a partnership like that is basically the equivalent of shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. So a lot of stuff happening with yes. video game studios. A lot of stuff happening with movie studios and turmoil. And we made it to an hour and a half on this show. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So I guess we'll call it. That's all the stories we have for you today. Carl, hope to see you again next week. Paul, good night, Paul. And good luck.